0: Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. The mystery of what happened to the lost colony of Roanoke Island has fascinated people for over 400 years. The origins of one of America's oldest unsolved mysteries can be traced back to July of 1587 when a group of about 116 English settlers arrived on Roanoke Island, off the coast of what is now North Carolina. The leader of this voyage, and the man the people would give the title of governor of the new Roanoke settlement, was a man named John White. John left Britain an accomplished artist, explorer, and cartographer, and was the perfect man to lead the voyage into the unknown. As excited as the travelers were to reach their destination and set up their new lives, the native tribes of Roanoke Island on the other hand weren't as thrilled. The natives have already been visited by previous English expeditions, and relations between the two groups were strained at best. During that first month, there were a few small attacks from local Native Americans, and the colonists desperately wanted John to return back to England to retrieve some more supplies for them, like food, tools, and more people. So in August of 1587, just one month after arriving, White sailed back to England to gather supplies, leaving behind 115 colonists, 87 men, 17 women, and 11 children including his own daughter, Eleanor White Dare, who had just given birth to White's granddaughter, Virginia Dare, the first baby born in North America to English parents. Upon returning to England, John White found out that his now-wife and mother-in-law died of an illness, a devastating blow. But with help from the Crown, White was still able to gather the supplies, more people, and a boat to return back to Roanoke Island. At the time, England was in the middle of a war with Spain. So ocean travel became a little tricky, and it took John White a little bit longer to get back than he originally planned. In August of 1590, three years after leaving on his first trip to Roanoke Island, Governor John White returned home, only to find the colony abandoned, without a trace of anyone. Now three years is a long time, and a lot of things can happen. The simplest answer is the colony moved on, but most of the homes that were built were still full of the colonists' belongings. The only clue left behind was the word Croatoan, carved into a fence post and Crow, C-R-O carved into a nearby tree. John White reportedly attempted on two different occasions to sail the 50 or so miles south to the nearby Croatoan island now known as the Hatteras Island to search for the colonists and his family. However, according to White's journals both trips were foiled by storms and he was forced to turn back each time. Because the boat that John was using was not his but on loan from the ground he was unable to attempt a third time He returned to Europe and relocated himself to Ireland, where he lived out the rest of his days, passing away in 1593, never finding out what happened to his family. To this day, no one knows for certain the fate of the lost colonists from Roanoke Island. Even more chilling, despite over 115 people disappearing, no bodies or mass graves have ever been found. Historians have theorized on the lost colony in the hundreds of years that have passed. No one has been able to produce concrete evidence, though. The first theory that you come across is that the settlers were killed by the natives in an attack. In fact, a previous attempt had been made by the English to colonize Roanoke Island years before, sometime around 1586. But they soon returned to England after attacks from some of the Native Americans they encountered, as well as a shortage of food. The governor of the first Roanoke colony, Ralph Lane, was not known for being the best diplomat when it came to dealing with Native Americans. Lane would actually go on to kill the king of the local tribe in an attempt to prevent the natives from rising up against the colonists. This prompted Sir Francis Drake, a naval officer, explorer, and politician who was most famous for sailing around the world in a single expedition from 1577 to 1580, an absolutely amazing feat even by today's standards, to come rescue the colonists and bring them back to England. A second theory is that the English settlers joined a nearby friendly Native American tribe and assimilated. One possible Native American ambassador was a man named Mantio, who traveled to England in 1584, but also made a second year long trip after that, between the two Roanoke expeditions. In fact, he sailed back to Roanoke with John White and the new colonists in 1587, spending months together on the journey across the Atlantic. Furthermore, after Manteo was baptized upon his return to Roanoke, John White declared Manteo to be the chief of the Roanoke and Croteoan tribes. However, Mantio was only from the Croatoan tribe, not the Roanokes. He had no authority over them, so he ended up going back to Croatoan Island with his people. Some theorize that it is possible that he returned at some point to Roanoke to take the colonists with him to Croatoan Island. In 1888, 54 Croatan Native Americans petitioned Congress for aid, describing themselves as the remnant of White's lost colony. A few months later, the directors of the Ethnological Bureau responded with a note that read, and I quote, It was thought that traces of white blood could be discovered among the Indians. Some among them have gray eyes. It is probable that with a greater number of colonists were killed, but it was quite in keeping with Indian usages that a greater or less number, especially women and children, should have been made captive and subsequently incorporated into the tribe. End quote. In 2015, archaeologists found a series of objects of European origin on Hatteras Island, where the Croatan tribe resided. This included broken bowls from England, the hilt of an iron rapier sword, and a writing tablet made of slate that may have still had the letter M printed on it, and anglets. The sword is a type that was used in England in the 16th century, and the hilt would have belonged to an Englishman of high standing. The writing tablet would have been used by educated upper-class Europeans. Anglets are small copper tubes used before the 17th century to secure wool fibers. Therefore, those findings would seem to point to the presence of colonists of roughly the same time period and class as the people of Roanoke. However, most of the European finds on Hatteras Island were among other objects that date back to the 17th century, about a hundred years after the disappearance of the Roanoke colony. Last but not least, this theory could explain the carving Croatoan that the settlers left behind, perhaps as a clue to their whereabouts. Buckle up, because we're nowhere near done. A third theory states that the lost colonists were massacred by Spanish pirates or soldiers. This was a time of war and tension between England and Spain. The Spanish could have spotted the English ship sailing in the Atlantic and followed it to Roanoke, where they kidnapped the colonists and murdered them at the sea. Some say that the colony didn't move south to Croatoan at all, but instead moved inland. John White was an artist. He was also part of the original failed Roanoke expedition between 1585 and 1593. He created a detailed watercolor map titled La Virginia Pars. Sorry, my Latin isn't really up to par. That shows the North Carolina coast and includes both Roanoke and Croatoan islands, which are colored red for unknown reasons. The cartography of this map is thought to be extremely accurate, described by museum experts as, quote, the most careful, detailed piece of cartography for any part of North America to be made in the 16th century. And when compared to modern satellite imagery of the same area, the only difference in the map are the naturally changing shapes of the coastline. Now, I don't know the first thing about cartography, but if you were to ask me to close my eyes and draw a map of the room I'm sitting in, I'm embarrassed thinking about what it would look like. So for someone to accurately draw the coastline of North Carolina in the 16th century, that's very impressive. At a glance. This seemed like nothing more than a map, but upon closer inspection, this map was revealed to perhaps hide secrets that seemed straight out of a Nicolas Cage movie. In 2012, a non-profit organization called First Colony Foundation requested that the British Museum re-examine two small patches on the map. Using patches to cover mistakes or damage was a common technique in the 16th century map making, because maps took so much time and work to create that starting over wasn't a viable option. Using x-ray, infrared light, and other imaging techniques, the British Museum was able to determine that the smaller patch was covering a four-pointed star outlined in blue and filled in with red. According to the British Museum's report, while the detailed interpretation of the symbol is beyond the scope of this study and is best left to experts in the field, it seems certain to represent a fort or fortification. In other words, the star may show the location of a fort or some other kind of structure, inland from Roanoke Island, on the western side of Abermarl Sound, where the colonists could have resettled. Further adding to this mystery, when examined extremely closely, it was discovered that there are actually light markings of this possible fort on top of the patch as well. The British Museum's report posits the marking faded over time, but it also proposes that one other possible, if not rather romantic, explanation is that these lines could reflect the use of invisible ink, an ink that would only be revealed when treated in some sort of way, usually by applying heat. These secret markings could be accomplished during that time by either using milk or lemon juice. If this fort was indeed intended to be hidden, why the secrecy? Some speculate White could have wanted to hide the colony's location from the English court, which may have contained spies. Whatever the marks indicate, they believe this evidence supports the idea that the settlers could have left Roanoke Island for this inland location. Interestingly, John White himself reportedly made no oblique reference to the location 50 miles inland from Roanoke Island in his account of what happened when he returned. Excavations on this site have turned up evidence of Europeans, including Surrey, Hampshire borderware, a type of ceramics that were discontinued soon after Jamestown in 1624. This is the best indication of tying the location to Roanoke colonists, though these items cannot, without a doubt, be dated back to the same exact time frame. Even if it's eventually confirmed that the colonists moved inland or to Croatoan Island, many possible unanswered questions remain, such as why did they leave Roanoke? And what happened to them afterwards? Since no definitive existence of any of the 115 lost colonists were documented after August 25th, 1587, these questions have left some to point to supernatural causes. What if the object that John tried to hide on the map wasn't a fort? It wasn't a structure at all, but a landing site. Some believe aliens would explain why the colonists' bodies were never discovered, And if Croatoan was in fact a clue to where they were going... ...then why did the colonists not offer any other substantial clues... ...such as a note or a map? Perhaps because they left the island in haste... ...and not on their own volition. The word Croatoan is perhaps the key to this mystery after all. What if it's not a where? But a what? During my research, I ended up going down many different rabbit holes about that time... ...and about Native Americans and their folklore. I also somehow ended up researching strange diseases and how to make your own Big Mac sauce. That's where I've been during my four-month hiatus. Croatoan has also been used to name an illness that is supposedly a mutated strand of the measles. What got my attention were the side effects. It has been said to bring about a very high fever that has been linked to causing delusional madness as well as cannibalism. Well, why hasn't this disease ever resurfaced? Roanoke, after all, was an island, so it would conceivably contain the infection to the confines of the shoreline. And once the people died... The illness died with them. Harvard archaeologist Lawrence Stager claims that he actually discovered evidence that would suggest mass cannibalism on Roanoke. This brought me back to the Native American folklore rabbit hole, and all the pieces started to fall into place. It was said John White attempted to sail south twice and was stopped due to weather. Roanoke Island was slammed by a hurricane that halted him and a blizzard during his next attempt. It was the blizzard that stopped me cold in my tracks. Pun intended. The Native Americans tell a story of the Chinoo, a cannibal giant of the snowy forest. Many people have heard of the Wendigo, the cannibal monster found in the American Indian folklore across much of the northern U.S. and Canada. Wendigos have been featured in movies, comic books, and TV shows. In northern New England, and stretching throughout the Carolinas, the Wabanaki tribes talk about a similar creature, known as either the Chinu or the Kiwakwa. According to Frank Speck's 1935 article, Penobscot Tales and Religious Beliefs, in the Journal of American Folklore, The word kawakwa means going about in the woods. If you don't want to see one of these monsters, stay out of the woods during the winter. Perhaps the marking on this map was where John White first saw something that he couldn't explain. Perhaps it's also why he fled back to England, only a month after sailing across the ocean. According to the stories, the Chino is a human being who has been transformed through dark magic to a cannibalistic giant. Much like the Incredible Hulk, they get larger the angrier they get. ...and often tower above the tallest tree. Unlike the Hulk, they are emaciated, have enormous fangs, and often eat their own lips in hunger. They are always hungry, and their screams will kill any human who hears it. Sometimes, a dead shaman of great power may return from his grave as a chinu. Chinu usually only appear during winter. According to the legend, chinus get their power from a lump of human-shaped ice in their stomach... There are several tales throughout the folklore where clever people make a chino vomit up the ice lump, which returns its human form. In some stories, making a chino eat salt will melt the lump. Chopping a chino into many small pieces is the only way to be certain it won't regenerate, and even after it's killed, people will avoid the spot where it died. Did the colonists of Roanoke encounter one of these beasts? Who knows? I sure don't. A supposed piece of evidence is the existence of carvings in the stones that were supposedly made by Eleanor Dare the daughter of John White. These stones, often called the Dare Stones, contain written stories that tell tales of the colonists and personal anecdotes from Dare to her father. Though they are largely believed to be a hoax and a forgery, there are some academics that believe that at least one of the stones may be authentic. Since 1998, the Croatonin Project has researched and provided archaeological evidence to back up the theory that the colonists moved to be with, or at least interacted with, the Hatteras tribe. Artifacts and objects found within the Croatoan villages that only English settlers have owned have solidified the connection between the two groups. But despite this evidence and many other theories, it is likely that no definitive answer to the mystery of the colonists' disappearance will ever be found. Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com haunted. I'll see you there. New Shoreham, Rhode Island. Also known as Block Island, this small New England town sits in the middle of the Atlantic, just northeast of Montauk Long Island and south of Point Judith, Narragansett, Rhode Island. At around 109 square miles, it is the smallest and least populous municipality in the state, with just over 1,000 year-round residents. Block Island is very much a summer town, making a majority of their money off the tourism dollars when the population jumps to over 20,000. The island's beaches and boating scene are second to none on the East Coast, and the island boasts some of the most stunning views of the Atlantic. With one small airport providing vacationers access to this offshore retreat, people from around the country are able to reach the island via New England Air, which operates commercial passenger service between Westerly and Block Island. They even have activities during the winter months that draw attention from tourists as well, such as ice skating as the island's lakes freeze entirely over, and the sand dunes make for great sledding, if you could tolerate the freezing winds gusting in from the ocean. It was during February of 2013 when Winter Storm Nemo was bearing down on the northeast and it dumped over two feet of snow on Block Island in a very short time. That's when we meet Mary Sheely. Mary had a pot of milk slowly heating on the stove while her children, Rebecca, age 11, and Thomas, age 14, sat in their living room staring out the window of the storm outside while they waited for their hot chocolate. Mary was waiting on a call from her husband, Richard, who worked at the Block Island airport to see if he was going to be able to make it home tonight or not. The sun was heading down and it was going to be dark soon, and neither of them wanted Richard to risk venturing out into this after the dark and, God forbid, getting stuck. As Mary was taking the milk off the stove and pouring it into their mugs, the phone rang. Becca ran to pick it up and gave a quick, hello, as she put the receiver to her ear. Mom, Becca shouted, it's dad, and he doesn't sound happy. Mary came walking into the living room with both mugs in her hand, handing Becca hers and taking the phone with her now free hand. Thomas was busy opening the window a little bit and laughing at the amount of snow that was able to get into the house from such a small crack. Thomas, stop that, Mary shouted as she shouldered the phone. You are going to soak the entire floor. Hello? Rich? Tell me you're coming home. As Mary had the conversation with her husband, Thomas called his sister over to the window. Can you believe how the wind is blowing? It's fighting me when I try to close the window. He gives it another quick open and struggles more this time to shut it. And look, I think that weird guy down the block is trying to shovel or something. He's just standing there. Becca leans in to have a look and she spots the outline of a man standing in the raging snow, silhouetted by the setting sun. They both squeeze in tight together and press their faces up against the glass to get a closer look, their combined breath fogging up the glass. As Thomas wipes the window clear, they notice the eyes, glowing a deep red. They both see it at the same time and back away from the glass a little bit and look at each other. Thomas begins to open the window a bit to try and get a better look. Maybe the sun was reflecting off the glass and that's what was causing the glow. Just as mom finishes her conversation with her husband and calls out to the kids, informing them that dad isn't coming home tonight. He's snowed in at work and asking them if they want to talk to him. She also yells at Thomas again to close that damn window. Dad tells them that if the power goes out tonight, and it's gonna, they should make their way down to the basement. Like most homes on small island towns like this, they have a generator and their basement is set up almost like a fallout shelter. They have an electric heater down there, and plenty of board games and DVDs to keep them busy until morning. Thomas was informed that his job was to run an extension cord from the downstairs to the fridge in the kitchen so that none of the food spoils just in case. They have enough gas in the generator to run it for 12 hours, and enough full cans to run it for the next few days if need be. The blizzard raged all night with the wind howling. The family cowered in their togetherness, sharing the warmth of one another as they waited for daybreak and the arrival of their father. Becca and Thomas snuggled next to Mary on the couch, watching reruns of Mom's favorite show, I Love Lucy. A light bulb begins to flicker. Thomas looks up and spots another one flickering. And then, with a flash, the TV blacks out. Power is out in the entire house. Not only that, Power seems to be out on the entire street. Possibly the entire island. Mary stumbles her way into the kitchen, feeling for the countertop so she can run her hands across it, on the way to the drunk drawer, where she keeps a small flashlight. She finds it and digs out the light and flips it on. It's a small light, but enough to get them down to the basement safely. The generator kicked on almost immediately when the power went out, and they can hear the loud roar of the jenny kicking on and the steady hum of it running from its raised concrete slab in the backyard. They made their way down to the basement to settle in for a long night. Mary made sure the heater was up and running as Thomas dug through his father's milk crate stored under the steps for an extension cord. While he was running the cord up the stairs, Becca was looking through board games for something to play. She was between Monopoly and Risk, She went with Risk because she didn't want her family to hate each other so early in the night by playing Monopoly. By the time you hate the people you're playing Risk with, you're usually too tired to end the game. As she set up the board, she thought she heard something. But it was nothing out of the ordinary, so she figured she was probably just tired. It wasn't even 10 o'clock yet, but today's been really busy. Things start to lose their clarity when you're tired, especially when you're 11. Normally she'd be getting ready for bed, but Mon told them they could stay up as late as they wanted tonight, and Thomas showed no signs of slowing down. She made him a bet that he'd be asleep before her and loser has to shovel the driveway, alone. Her mother and brother were setting up the board game and rolling dice for who plays his pieces first. Mom had her iPhone plugged into a pair of old computer speakers to play some music to drown out the hum of the generator, which was pretty much all it was good for. The cell towers were down, and she didn't have service. The problem with listening to the hum is it kind of puts a drone in your ears. If you listen for more than an hour, you can start to hear things that aren't there. But Becca heard it again. It sounded like a thud, but now it was louder, and the wind sounded like it was picked up. Tom and Mary heard it also. "'Did did you guys hear that?' Becca asked. "'Yeah, it sounded like it came from the front,' Tom replied. He stood up and gathered a few candles. Dad had a stash of them sitting around another milk crate. He wished he had a stash of flashlights down there, but all they had was the one that Mom grabbed from the drunk drawer. The other ones were rechargeable lights, and they weren't on their chargers.' They only stored enough juice in the short time they've been plugged in since they've come down to produce a weak orange glow. Tom pulled them out and Mary grabbed a lighter from the small work table Dad had in the corner. With a spark from the lighter, the candles became illuminated. Tom handed Becca one and the other one to his mother. As they made their way back up the stairs, the glow from the lights of the basement grew fainter as they made their way to the top of the steps into the kitchen. Mary, out in front, her candle blew out almost instantly as she stepped through the doorway from the basement into the kitchen. It was freezing upstairs was it so cold? The power's only been out a few hours. She dug her small flashlight out of her pocket and switched it on. She told the kids to stay in the kitchen while she checked out in the front of the house. She was hoping a tree branch didn't snap and hit the house, taking down the gutters. The wind outside was howling when she made her way into the living room, and that's where she saw the window. It was wide open. Snow has been gathering on the rug, and the top of the easy chair in the corner was covered. She yells out for Thomas for him to come into the living room. Thomas, where are you? She flashed the lights across the room, but met no resistance. And why wasn't her son answering her? The children had been in the kitchen. She slammed the window closed and fastened the lock. She made her way back toward the kitchen the long way, going through the front hall and then into the dining room to make sure other windows weren't open, and glancing outside to make sure nothing was damaged. She didn't see anything. As she re-entered the kitchen, she was ready to read Thomas the riot act. I told him over and over to stop playing with the window. He must have left it unlocked or a little open, and the wind pushed it up. Becca and Thomas were still standing where she left them, staring in the direction she first went, toward the living room. Thomas, go get a dustpan and a bucket. You left the window up. and you have some cleaning up to do. I told you over and over to not... Her sentence was cut off when she realized her kids were zoned out standing in the entryway. She made her way in front of them to continue her rant until she saw their faces, wide-eyed with terror. Looking through their mother... What are you guys, playing a joke? Mary said angrily. I'm not in the mood. Becca's right arm shot up and just pointed behind her mother. What is it? Mary said confused and kind of scared at the same time. As she turned around with her flashlight pointing in the direction her daughter was pointing. The flashlight illuminated what had literally taken her children's ability to speak. It was a man. Or, or it used to be a man. Standing at around seven feet tall, it hulked in the entryway of the kitchen from the living room. It was covered in thick, knotted hair from head to toe. There were tattered remnants of clothing that looked more to be stuck to this creature's body than it were wearing it. Its face had unblinking red eyes peering out from behind filthy hair clotted with what looks to be dried blood all over its face. Its jaw protruded with a horrendous underbite that caused its top fangs to rip at its lower lip and tongue, causing fresh blood to gather around its mouth and drip from its chin onto its belly. Mary seemed to react quicker than she could think, she swiped a can of cooking spray off the counter next to her and pulled the lighter out of her pocket. With a flick of her left thumb and the press of her right index finger, she sprayed this creature in the face with a burst of flame. This snapped the kids out of their daze and Beck out let out a shriek of terror. Thomas grabbed his little sister by the hand and took off running through the house. The creature let out a roar and staggered back into the living room and Mary pressed forward, emptying the can. She heard their kids make their way to the front door and the sound of the wind throwing the door open and slamming it into the wall. The next thing she heard was the sounds of their footsteps making their way up the stairs to the bedrooms. She thought, they're going to get their coats. Which was smart. They couldn't go out in their pajamas in this weather. They wouldn't last 30 minutes. The creature dropped down to its knees and she saw its hands as it brought it up to its face howling in pain. They weren't really hands at all. They looked like paws. They still had long fingers and claws that looked like splintered razors on the ends of them. But they were padded. The can of cooking spray began to sputter as it emptied itself of its aerosol contents. The creature was writhing around on the floor, clutching its face and rubbing its head on the carpet. Mary took this time to run herself to the steps to hurry up the children. Yelling for them, Mary darted up the stairs, grabbing her jacket off the hook as she made her way up. Kids, she shouted. Let's go! Becca was bundled, standing in the doorway to Thomas' room, nervously shifting weight from one foot to the other as he was frantically searching under his bed for the other snow boot. Mary ran to the foot of the bed shouting for Thomas to get out of her way as she grabbed the bed by the frame and yanked it like a magician pulling off a tablecloth. There was the boot, sitting in the back of the bed against the wall. He must have kicked them off in his room instead of putting them where they belonged. These damn kids never listen. He was shoving his foot into the boot as they heard the boom of a heavy footstep and the creak of the stairs. The creature was coming up. Rebecca was looking over her shoulder toward the stairs and then back towards her mother and brother, tears streaming down her face. Mary grabbed her daughter by the jacket and pulled her into the bedroom, slamming the door behind her. Mary instructed the kids to help her as she was sliding the dresser, bed, and anything else she could get her hands on to the front of the door. The snow and wind outside the bedroom window swirled and howled with malicious intent. Mary rushes to the window as the footsteps outside the door began to grow closer, at the top of the steps now. She looked out the window in hopes of finding an escape, but all she saw was white. She couldn't tell where the slope of the roof stopped and the ground began. Climbing out on there might as well mean death. She reached over in the corner of the room and grabbed Thomas' baseball bat that was leaning against the wall. Get behind me, kids, she said, fighting back tears and bringing the bat up to her shoulder. She put this thing down once and she can do it again, just long enough for them to get around it. Then they can make their way to a neighbor. Becca was crying hysterically and Thomas was fighting back tears, trying to stay brave for his mom and sister. The footsteps were on top of them now, right outside the door. The dim glow of the flashlight and the moonlight reflecting off the snow were all the lighting in the room. Mary pulled her kids close, kissed them both on the tops of their heads, and whispered, I love you. From the pages of the Rhode Island Capital Gazette, February 15th, 2013. A man on Block Island is hoping that someone will come forward with information about his family's disappearance over the weekend of February 9th. Richard Shealy is working with Rhode Island Missing Persons Network to raise awareness of his case, the Capital Gazette reported Sunday. Mary, age 46, Thomas, age 14, and Rebecca, age 11, were reported missing in Washington County on February 11th when Richard returned home from his job at Block Island Airport where he is an air traffic controller after being snowed in for two days before the roads were cleared. Police have offered no explanation to why the front door was open or why the furniture in the upstairs bedroom of son Thomas was rearranged. Several large animal footprints have been found in the home, possibly due to the fact of the door being open and trying to get out of the storm searching for food. Richard added, While this is a terrifying development in many ways, I'm trying to focus on the fact that it leaves the door open that they still might come home. Mary was so utterly happy and joyful when we last spoke. She was making cocoa for the kids. I'd do anything just to see them and to hold them right now. On Friday, searches near the northwest portion of the island were halted by heavy snowfall. Temperatures have plunged to below freezing even during daytime, and the weather is not forecast to improve until Tuesday. Chief Brody of BIPD stated, This is a bad time to be lost outside and we're doing our best to comb the air thoroughly. The chief also said to our reporter that as of right now, Mr. Shealy is not a suspect. Richard Shealy says, I pray every night, and even if I have to get a shovel and dig clear this entire island, I will. I have all their Valentine's gifts in my truck. I won't rest until I can give them to them. Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History, music by Kevin MacLeod.